Mr. Mike Gorman. Big Bri. Big Cheers. Bri. Thanks for driving down. My pleasure. Where are you living nowadays? Madison. Right near Morristown. Sounds bougie. Now, Chatham, Short Hills are bougie. Madison's like, you step back 20 years in time. People are nice. They, they talk to you. And believe it or not, there's some diversity, so it's not terrible. Nice historical town. Yep. I'm, I'm a, back off, a block off the main street in a townhouse so I can walk into town and stumble home. Not terrible, right? <laughs> Drink of choice bourbon tonight? Bourbon's not terrible. It's, it's October, good. so I'm going to the Browns. Otherwise, we'd be going for tequila. Tequila? So you can get up and go for a run in the morning? I, I'll think about it. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I preface this, and I've kind of leaked it out like, hey, this guy's been an inspiration in my life. He's been an influence in my life. You need some help. Yeah, I need some help. And then I'm like, wow, if Mike Gorman's an influence in my life, what am I doing with myself? You got you to you 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 make a change, baby. You got to make a change. <laughs> you know, I, I think I told you briefly what this is about and a little bit of, you know, um, housekeeping here. I really started this to show other kids who came up like me who had a little bit of struggles, say, in school or getting into trouble as a younger kid. And show them that if you want to chase down success and financial freedom at any level, you could do it. And the show is really put together to spotlight local business owners and or people who have similar stories. Um, I don't really know much of your childhood, but I know your story in general in business of kind of being at the top of the top and then getting your legs taken out from you <clears throat> and then kind of refining yourself and retooling yourself and running into this crazy journey <laughs> that you have ran into. I thought that you'd be a great person to have on the show. So thank you for coming. My pleasure. I love it. So start me off in your career. What did you start doing first? Well, I went, I went to Lafayette College and I started selling insurance, but I was afraid of like not making it in the business. So Rather than going back to where I was born and raised in New Jersey, South Orange, I figured I'd move to Allentown, Pennsylvania, where I didn't know anybody. So if I failed, no one would know, right? <laughs> and uh, but I, I, you know, it was it was pretty dry gold for the first year and a half, and I started to kind of hit my stride a little bit, and things started to work out pretty well. But I was working with a lot of business owners, and I'm like 24 years old, and I don't, I think retained earnings is something you can spend. Yeah, I, I didn't really know taxes. So I figured if I was going to be in the in this for a long t haul, I better get a tax background of some sort. So I got a job at uh, Pete Mark and Mitchell in those days. It's now KPMG. Spent about eight, maybe six disastrous months in the audit department. Didn't like it. And um, then I went to the tax <coughs> department. They were all lawyers, so I figured went in, do as. Went to law school at night. But they didn't pay for law school. So uh, I got a, I, about a, six months into it, I got a job at... Home Life Insurance Company in New York, and they paid for law school. And I got a little bit of bump in, in uh, comp, so. Now, what made out. you go into the life insurance? Not, I want, not that I want to spend a ton of time on the life insurance, but what made you pick that field? Well, uh, there was a guy named Ronnie Bushwell who was my good friend of my father's, and he'd always done really well financially. And he was telling me about his renewal income and stuff like that. So when I was, like, you know, in college, I, was, I started selling for Northwestern Mutual, and the idea was is that if you sell a lot of these policies over time, you could build up this renewal income, 
And maybe by the time you're 35 or 40, things could get a lot easier. That's what I thought. Yeah. <laughs> so fast forward, you say, you know what? I'm going to go leverage some capital of this big insurance company. They're going to help me pay for my degree in tax law. What did you go? F what did you do from there? Where was your next few steps? And well, what were you looking to accomplish? They were. They were. I wanted to be president of the insurance company, right? And uh, I figured with the CPA and the law degree, I have a little experience there on the financial side, and could deal with issues as they would arise. So, Home Life was going to merge with Pacific Mutual in those days. But one one was thinking of creating a marketing company, and the other one was thinking of a full-out merger. And Home Life was much smaller than Pacific Mutual. And I said, look, these two CEOs are talking about different things. So I'm going to the brass and saying, they're not on the same page. And they go, don't worry, they are. And it turns out they weren't. So it collapsed because Pac Life just said, well, well, we'll merge you guys in when you move into La Jolla, California. And, and the chairman at the time was harumphing because he didn't want to do that. He was trying to kind of muscle in. So long story short, I uh, wound up... Uh, doing that so I knew the real guts of the company but then an agency position opened up in, in, in Madison, New Jersey, Green Village. So I went out there to become a sales manager and the idea was to do that for six months. Same company? Uh, home Life, yeah. I become the manager and uh, the guy that was there at that time would go into the home office and become like the chief marketing officer or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I figured that would be a good stepping stone, make a splash because in order to move up you got to do something that other people haven't done. So if you do a really good job, that's how you get noticed. And then you can see when your opportunity is open and see if it happens. How'd you do there? Did great. Um, became an agency field director. And we would go to all these different agencies around the country. And, uh, you know, it was the old lie. I'm from the home office here to help you. Yeah. And these guys were all terrified. And because uh, you always report back to the boss on what's going right, what's going wrong. And they all knew that. But uh, I learned a lot from their mistakes. Because you'd go in and you'd see what they were doing. And you'd go, well, I know one thing. When it's my turn, I'm not doing that. So you always in life learn more about mistakes. So I was doing a seminar last night, and I said to some people, I said, I'm an expert. And I said, but my definition of an expert is different than yours. I said, an expert is that person who's made more mistakes than anybody else, but is still here to tell the tale. Mm -hmm. That'd be me. Because you learn from the mistakes. And so when you're doing planning or drafting documents and stuff, you know what to look for because you made those mistakes before. Not intentionally, but it happens. So as you move forward, you get better and better because you know where the minefields are. Now, how long did you do that position? Oh, geez. Probably like until I got out of law school and then I, a year after. And then, then the guy that was supposed to come in to go into the home office and I was supposed to take it, something happened and he didn't go. So, oh, I know what happened. The biggest producer in the office drops dead on his kitchen floor. Of course. And so he wasn't in my, I wasn't getting overrides on the guy. I was just hanging out. I mean, working with my own unit. Mm -hmm. And he comes in and goes, I got to cut your comp. And I'm like going, how come? And he goes, I can't afford it anymore because this guy's gone. I said, well, I wasn't getting any, any beef on him. So what, what's my problem? So it became my problem. And I said, so I was trying to get a, I was trying to move for another bump, you know, for myself. Instead, he was cutting me in half. Yeah. And I said, I got a young family. I can't do that. So I left and I went to Arthur Anderson in their comp and benefits unit. And I spent about two years there, got a lot of experience there, and then went back into the agency business with Provident Mutual. And I had a partner and they got him, Jim Manhart. And um, I started here, he started there, and each year we'd move to parity, 
And then he retired when he was 58. And it was my... How many guys did you have at the time? <clears throat> we started with 22, kind of small. And then by the time he retired, we had about 80. So it was kind of a couple satellite offices. What year was that? 2000... No, 1998, 99, 98, something so like that. So you were about? 40-something, 44, 46. And team of 80, that's that's pretty impressive. Yeah, we're making great money, believe me. What were they doing at the time in, in revenues for the company? Um, we had more money under management than MetLife had in their, their whole company. Um, we were, like, leading in life production. So we were doing great, making a lot of money. Yeah. And um, that was good, so... Ultimately, the, the chairman, he asked me if I wanted to be the chief marketing officer. Now, remember, I always wanted to be the, you know, the head honcho. So I, I, but at the time, I was, I was coaching my son and my daughter you know, in different sports, Little League, whatnot. And I was making great money. So I, I said, you know, I appreciate the offer, but I think I'm good where I am. And he goes, I knew you'd say that. You know, and he said, well, will you at least talk to me about it? And I said, okay. So we go down to Matitacock, not too far from here. And we don't play golf. We sit there for three hours going head to head. And he says, look, take the freaking job. I'll make you president in six months. I retire in two years. You're the chairman. Now, being like 48, 50 years old, chairman of a mutual insurance company, no stockholders, that's pretty tasty. Yeah, right? not a bad deal. So I drove home that night sort of excited, but my stomach hurt. And I goes, what's the problem? I said, well, we'd have to move to Philadelphia, which I like. <coughs> but something was wrong. And what he was doing was he was trying to get me to be the head guy to hold the field force together while he sold it to Nationwide. So I was never going to be the chairman because it wasn't going to be a company. And that and that happened. They actually ended up oh, yeah. selling to Nationwide. So he was trying to, you know, and he must have, he took a big boatload out, but it didn't work so well for him. Because, you know, there was a guy named uh, Jack Miller who was the chairman, and he was old school, but he, his attitude was for him to become the chairman of the company, it was a fiduciary responsibility of his. And he said, my job is to hand this off to the next guy in better shape than I got it. And I always thought that was a great way, not to milk the cow and strip, you know, strip mine everything out I can get. That wasn't the idea. Make it better for the next generation and keep it going. But ultimately, the 150-year company disappeared. That's not good. Now, fast forward, you stayed with Nationwide for how many years? Didn't. Uh, Nationwide wasn't supporting face-to-face -face distribution. So oh, yeah, they got rid of the career channel. Yeah, so everybody was getting out. And um, my father always told me, Rolling Stones gather no moss. So I was just thinking I'd hang out. But everybody was leaving, and I said, well... So then I finally got a call from a guy named Bob Ben Moshe, who was the chairman of MetLife at the time. And he said, would you come join our company? And I said, no. I said, why not? He go, I said, you have the, the fat guys with the short ties that sell the $10,000 whole life policies. And he started to laugh, and he goes, you're right. Yeah. And he says, I want you to be the new MetLife. we got plenty of money. we got good products. And all I want you to do is do what you're doing there, you know, with us, that you were doing it at, you know, Provident Mutual. And I said, I, I could do that. So now this is like in 2001. And, they, you know, they gave me a big fat guarantee. It was, it was big money. And big money then, and it's still big money now, right? Yeah. And... Uh, I turned it down. They go, you want more money? And I said, no. I said, I got a team of people, because I can't do it all myself. I said, I want to bring them with me. So they devised this cockamamie formula where if I made a profit, I got to keep it. And if I lost money, they would pay for half 
and I would pay for half. So I knew I was going to lose money the first year. Talent acquisition, you got to buy people out and stuff like that. So I lost 450000 in the first year. So I owe Met 225000 bucks. I did better the second year. I only lost four hundred. So now I owe another two hundred. So by the time the interest and all that, I owe me half a half a rock. Mm -hmm. In the third year, I made enough to pay it all back and still make a half a rock for myself. Not terrible. Yeah, that's great. So I'm giving all the speeches. I'm the man, you know. And um, then Ben Moshe announces his retirement. Remember I told you about those the fat guys with the short ties? Yeah. They came back into power after he left, and they hated me. So three years later, they hunted me down like a dog. And I got, I got thrown out. So that's where I want to have the story shift. You had a ton of success in building firms with small assets under management and investing and insurance planning and, and tax planning. You then go into a large company like MetLife and you feel, in your opinion, that you were given a raw deal. Um, and, and you may be right. I just don't want MetLife to sue me. You then started to think differently about what you wanted to do with your career. You have about how many different designations? <clears throat> uh, four or five, you know, the CLU, the CHSC, the JD. But I had all the securities licenses, 7, 24, 65, 63, hike, all of them, right? So this is 2008. Not a great time to go out. So I started another company. We, I, we went out to... Cincinnati and sold this company on this idea on creating a mega agency in the New York metropolitan area. And they gave us $5 million a year for three years. Nice sale, right? But just before we got the thing done, I took in a partner, this guy Richie. And so they called and said, look, you can't be the managing director. I said, why not? They said, because you're going to recruit about 40 or 50 guys out of MetLife and we're going to get sued for tortious interference. And we don't want to defend that. We might lose, and it'll cost us millions. It's a litigious world in that space. Yeah, so I said, wait your 18 months for that covenant not to compete. And then at the 18 months, we'll make you the MD. So I said, I didn't like that. But they said, we'll pay a consultancy and stuff like that. So financially, it was okay. Not great, but okay. I could get by. But I didn't know my partner was a sociopath. And I didn't know what a sociopath was. Mm -hmm. No conscience? Yeah. So I get a call from a major uh, accounting firm, and they said, look, heads up. Because I knew a couple of guys there, and they said, every lease you're signing, every piece of equipment that you're, you're buying, every copier, there's kickbacks going to your partner. And I'm like going, we could go to jail, right? And so I, I went to see a couple of attorneys, and they're both sitting there with me, two different firms, both saying, you have to quit today. I said, why? I didn't do anything. They said, you're in the deal. You're one of the partners. You know what's going on. You have Sienta. And if the feds come in, you're going down. And I said, I don't do that. So I quit. And it was the first. Now, so you got to look at my, life, my career like this. It was always up. There wasn't anything I didn't do that didn't turn into gold, right? So I was on a winning streak, risk taker, start companies, no problem. If I lose money, I'll fix it and we'll get it going. That now I'm in free fall. I got no place to go. Now what do I do? So the first thing I figure is, okay, I'm going to become the best investment advisor in the business. I'm going to read all the books, uh, modern portfolio, you name it, I knew it. Because I had experience with it anyway. But you remember 08 and 09, the crash? Yeah, of course. Right, so 
that was that was the the nadir that was the bottom of the equity markets and ever since then it's just gone to the moon but i never thought the federal reserve would do what it was has done since then 11 trillion dollars of money into the market artificially creating securities prices which exist today and at some point i think that that'll adjust when i've been wrong for 10 years so don't ask me but so people <clears throat> not to cut you off that all those things that you were working hard towards and I know of, of vetting you out and now knowing you for years, your heart was always in the right place. You were never looking to do somebody wrong. You were actually more about taking care of your team and your guys. And you felt like maybe corporate America and these institutional firms did you wrong. Well, their attitude was like, supposing I, I recruit people in and I give them a, a business plan or a compensation plan. Well, at the end of the year, if they've hit their bogeys, I gotta pay them. I can't use the excuse, well, we didn't make enough money this year, so I, I can't pay you. I took that as a, I made a promise, and a promise made is a promise kept. So remember those years I was telling you about I was losing the money? I had to go to banks and borrow money to pay their guys the bonuses because they did what they were supposed to do. Now, it all worked out, but I, there's a lot of people that wouldn't have done that. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying, you know, I wasn't really worried about how much I was making because I knew I was building something for the future. I just didn't think I'd get tossed out and they'd basically steal it from me. Mm -hmm. I, I was a little naive there. I'm like uh, Don Quixote. You got a windmill, I'll chase it. <laughs> and that gave you that gave you a little bit of a bad taste in your mouth, though. Oh yeah, bad. So I think I had a nervous breakdown when they they gave me the boot. And, and I'm fast forwarding your story because I want to get into the juicy part. <laughs> so you now start essentially consulting, right? And compliance is going to watch this, so I'm not allowed to talk much about what I do in any type of insurance or investment products. But you work with advisors like myself who go out and they're helping their clients with estate planning, business planning, all types of stuff. And you run into this Indian fellow who used to work with you at MetLife, correct? Rakesh, yeah, Rakesh was a, uh, he would call me from time to time and he would have these big clients, guys worth 100 million, 500 million. And he said, could you come out and do the estate plan for them? And I would do the document work and stuff like that. And then support any sales activity that was going on. So I could never figure out how this guy's getting in front of all these big guys? He's got he's got me going down to Miami to see this guy. It's worth two billion bucks, and this guy's got a skunk on the top of his head that looks like a skunk. You know, it doesn't look like a real good rug. But Cash, I'm sorry, I think it looks good. You know, but I mean, he's a wonderful guy. But I, I said, how does he get in front of these guys? He's not very, he's not like he knows superior knowledge or anything like that. But it turns out he's a Vedic astrologer. I didn't know what that was, but he would look at their charts and he would tell them about. You know, what, what was a good time to do this or that? So, time out for the audience. So, what you would do is you'd go in and you'd be building an estate plan. And you'd be building them a will or grats or something. And these people would call Rakesh and say, you know, I was born on X. And at this time, and he would essentially tell them when they were going to go meet their maker, right? Well, not, not so much meet their maker because the, the astrologists don't want to give you the bad news, even though they see it. So what they do is they, they tell you the good, when is a, a good time to do this, or maybe you should consider doing that. And so this one guy that I uh, ultimately um, did a lot of work for, um, when he, would, he had two NASDAQ-traded companies, and when he would make a major hire, he would bring Rakesh in and say, I want you to look at this guy's charts. If the charts were good, got hired. If the charts were bad, he didn't get hired. Mm -hmm. And I'm like going, these guys are serious. Yeah. Now, I, I didn't know much about it. So one day, and we were, we were raising money for this oil and gas program that I'm in. And 
Well, that's what I want to get into. Yeah. So this Rakesh introduces you into this, um, you know, investment fund or... One day he calls me and goes, I want you to meet the richest man in the world. And I said, okay, we're going to see Gates. We're going to see uh, Buffett. Who are we going to see? Anil Chopra. And I'm like going, who's he? Yeah. Is it Deepak Chopra? He goes, no, Anil Chopra. So we go to New York to the... To the um, one of the fancy hotels there. And we have lunch with the guy. And I said, Rakesh, this isn't the richest guy in the world. He's got holes in his shoes like we do. You know, he's a, he has a consulting business. I mean, he's not poor. Don't get me wrong. But he's not near, anything near like, a, you know, richest guy in the world. He goes, no, I am telling you. He will be the richest man, the Kubar. And I'm like, oh, he goes, I looked at his charts. So Rakesh went to IIT in India, which is like the MIT of, uh, in the United States. Actually, it's harder to get into than MIT. So when he was there, Neil was from the same same school. So they met at an alumni function, and Rakesh was looking at his charts. And so he asked him for his time of birth and, and day of birth, a year. And when he was looking at the charts, he said, and he was going, what do you see? And he goes, nothing in particular. You know, I don't think your venture is going to be successful. So Neil's a little down about that, right? But for some reason, Rakesh called his mother in India and said, now, he was born on this day at this time. And she goes, no, he was born at this time on this day. They had it wrong. So he, he, he adjusts and he looks at the chart and he goes, what the? He had never seen a chart like this. You know, unbelievable amounts of wealth, all the, you know, the richest guy in the world. So he says, ah, I must have made a mistake because this doesn't make any sense. So to check himself, he said, Anil, what's your son's time of birth and date of birth? Next, Bill Gates could buy anything in the world he wants, right? That type of thing. So, you know, he, Rakesh is all excited about this. And so he's drilling these oil wells in Oman. He beat out all the big, you know, the shells and Exxon. So wait, hold on. Don't, I, want, I don't want to jump ahead. So these guys end up going to college with a gentleman who was, you know, in the oil ministry over in Oman, correct? Is that how they got the, the heads up or the... Tip, Anil, I should say. Anil, Anil, um, Anil, when he came to, he got a scholarship to IIT in India, and then he got a fellowship to uh, University of Houston. And as a TA, he was teaching an oil, an oil and gas class. And about 35 years later, he was giving a, a little talk at an industry meeting, and this guy comes up and goes, do you remember me? And Anil goes, geez, I really don't. And he goes, I was a student of yours 35 years ago. Oh, I really appreciate you coming up and saying hello, right? And he goes, uh, what are you doing now? He goes, I'm the head of the oil ministry in Oman. Would you be willing to come? And he goes, you always know a little bit more than everybody else. Can you come out and consult with me? So he goes, sure. So he flies to, to Dubai and into Oman, Sana, and this big limo pulls up and the guy rolls the window down. And he goes, come on in, right? So they get in the, in the limo and they drive. Now, they don't drive to the building. They drive up this ramp and into the building into an elevator that brings them up to the guy's office, right? So it's pretty heavy. Different level. Yeah. And uh, so he started to consult on this and that. But when, I guess, I forget exact, the exact year, oil had dropped to like $30 a barrel. And no one was, it was almost like just in our past. Not, not now, because now prices are rising again. But in the recent past, oil was, and nobody's doing exploration. So he, he put a bunch of blocks on the Masundam Peninsula up for bid, 
and nobody bid on him. So Neil was working on him, and he calls him up and goes, no, the, the head of the oil ministry calls him and goes, Did everybody, does anybody in the United States have money? And he goes, what do you mean? He goes, no, the multinationals are not bidding on this thing. What's going on? He goes, they're pulling back because the price is low. He says, can I bid on it? And he goes, yeah. So he bid like a, a really stupid number, and he got the block, <laughs> right? Do you know what the number was? Like five million bucks. Pretty cheap. That's you know? crazy. Yeah. And so, but he kind of knew what he thought was there. So, so fast forward, you Rakesh ends up introducing you to this guy, and he wanted you to help him raise money and build some tax structures for the investors. Right, so he got the block, but now drilling's not cheap, right? So we went out, and Rakesh and I- Crazy went, expensive, right? Oh, yeah, like an, a multinational could spend 25 to 50 million to drill one well. Just but to it, see if the oil's there. Yeah, and so it's, it's, it's exploration. But Anil is very cost conscious. Some would call him frugal, some would call him cheap, but he's not. He's just he just nego he's a hard negotiator and he gets it done for maybe a, you know, where they might charge twenty five million, he might get it done for seven. So we went out and we went around the metropolitan area and then throughout the United States and we raised fifty million bucks for him, right? So boom, we give him the you know, he raises the fifty, everybody's got I got options, I've got some shares I bought, all this stuff, and he's Gunda, the first well. So he says, this thing's going to gush, right? So he drills it. It did gush. Water. <laughs> right? mm -hmm. Oily water. No commercialization. It was a bust. So we still got money left, so we start drilling. Other, uh, Cornage is a gas well. So <coughs> we go out there. So rather than go through the history of each well, we one thing you have to understand is it's a very risky business. And Saudi Arabia, the first seven wells that um, Exxon or Shell dr drilled in Saudi Arabia were dry holes. And that's in the biggest oil reserve in the world, right? So it wasn't like, you know, Jed Clampett, you drill it and boom, here it comes. Seven bust. The eighth one finally flowed. So Anil's gotten somewhere. He hasn't gotten a flow, but he knows the structure because he, he through the logs and knows what's there. So he thinks right now he has probably... 100 to 300 trillion cubic feet of gas, and each TCF or trillion cubic feet can sell for like $2 billion. Now, you did hit some oil, which you guys were able to then lever with the banks to get more capital, correct? No, we didn't flow it. We know it's, we, we believe it's there, and right now we have three wells going to try to prove that out, to get them to flow. And that should, in the next two months, we, you know, this is October, by Christmas we should be, be there on each one of these wells. Now, once they flow, flow, then you can start to monetize them because people know you, you've got it, right? Right now, it's just speculative. But here's, what I, here's the interesting part. So we drilled four or five wells, and it never flowed, and everybody's pissed off that they, they didn't get rich overnight because we've been doing this now for almost eight years, a long time, because we all thought, you know, money in, money out, retire, and you're good. didn't work that way. I want to take you back a minute. And I want to talk about this capital raise. Okay. So you went around with Rakesh, if I'm correct, right? Mm-hmm. And you went to all of these Indian families around the metropolitan area as well as the country to raise money for these drills. For the, the Petrotel. Yeah. So, so while you were helping these people build, we don't have to get into that, 
these complex tax and estate strategies, if the oil ever hit, that they would be you know, legally favorable in, in tax to them. Yeah, they wouldn't get estate tax. They wouldn't get estate tax. Push down to the kids, that kind of thing. You started to discover that they were all very much about this astrology. Tell me a little bit about that. So I met this nice woman. She's a pediatrician in Staten Island, Isla, and um, her son. And she put a bunch of money into this program because Rakesh told her this is going to be great, all this stuff. And he had known her for many, many years. So they came into the office, and we were doing this sophisticated estate plan. And afterwards, the son stayed behind and because he, he had some questions. So then he told me about, like, that he had gone to India, and he had gone to see these naughty astrologers. And I said, what's that? And he goes, well, these guys have these leaves that were done about 3,000 years. They were written 3,000 years ago. And if you go to see them in Chennai, pr predominantly is where the library is, um, they might find your leaf and it tells what's going to happen to your life. Now, this lady had been out there? No, the son had. The son. Right? And he said, thus far, everything they said that was going to happen had, had occurred to, to this him. son. Right. And I said, So what were you thinking at the time? I said, Wait a minute. You're telling me some jackass 3,000 years ago wrote your name on a leaf knowing that you would show up 3,000 years later to predict what was going to happen in your life. And he's going, yeah, that's what I'm telling you. And I'm like going, I said, whatever drugs you're taking, give me those. Now, this challenge, a lot of what you believe, because you've been brought up very, you know, divine Catholic. You run a Catholic prayer group. Oh, well, so I'm thinking, I didn't want to insult him. I said, oh, that's really interesting, you know, but I'm thinking, this guy's nuts. So I let it, you know, he, he leaves, we let it go. So about a month later, we're in Michigan, and I'm with this back surgeon, and he puts seven million bucks into the oil and gas program, and he's explaining to me, he says, "You do not understand. This is a fifty timer, a fifty times multiple," and I'm saying, "Okay, so you know, if he puts seven in, it's three hundred fifty million bucks. Nice deal." So the Indian community likes you to stay at their home if you're coming from out of town. Very, very gracious. So we're sitting there one night at dinner, and with his wife. Rajmi, and she goes, um, I, I was telling the story about um, uh, uh, Isla and her son talking about these naughty astrologers. And she goes, oh, I was there. I said, you went to see the naughties? And she goes, yeah. And I said, what happened? She goes, well, you know, you give them your uh, thumbprint because it's kind of like a catalog. And they ask you these yes and no questions. And then they see if they can find your leave. Like they might ask you a question, is your name Harry? No. All right, do you have two kids? Yes. All right, is your name? And, and sometimes they'll find your leave. And I'm like going, and I said, they found my leave. And I said, what did they tell you? And she goes, they told me that I was going to get married. To which I go, wow. Mm. Right? Big one. Right? And they told me I would have two daughters. Okay. Flip the coin. I'm thinking, this is all BS. But the last thing they told me I could never understand was, what was that? She goes, that I would have more wealth than I could ever imagine. To which I said, oh, no. You're thinking back to the 50-timer guy. Right. To her husband, right? Oh, said, it was her husband. Yeah, and I said, he just put $7 million into this program, and he's swearing it's going to be worth $350 million bucks. Is that more wealth than you ever imagined? She goes, oh, my God. They were right. So they're all into it, right? And I'm saying, that's odd. 
So, you know, we, we spend you, the weekend and we move on. You proceed to go through a good amount of families and you're running into this well, so often. So a couple of weeks later, we go to Anil Chopra's son's wedding in California. And Rakesh is there, Garish and, and Rajmi are there. Everybody's there, all the investors. And um, there was this one guy, Roy Dunbar. Now, Roy's not Indian. He's black as the ace of spades. Wonderful guy. Speaks the king's English. And so Rakesh goes to me, he goes, Roy, he went to see the Nadis. I go, get out, right? So we're standing there, and I said, you went to see the Nadis? Now, at yeah. this point, you completely think it's BS. You're just here helping these people do the estate plan. It's three-card Monty. I'm yeah. going to figure out how they do this. So I said, you went to see the Nadis? He goes, yeah. And I said, what happened? He goes, thumbprint, yes, no answers. And, they, and then they told me these different things. And they told me I was going to get married. Ooh. But they told me my wife's name would be Hortense. Hortense? And, they, and so when he came out of the reading and he went into the street with his buddies, the single guys, they were going, Hortense? That's not even a name. Idiots, right? So as he's telling me the story, his wife comes over and he goes, oh, I want to introduce my wife. Hortense. Now, what were you thinking at that moment? He says, here's my wife, Hortense. I said, oh, Jesus. I said, it's a third time from Isla and Anad, her son, to Garish, to now Roy. I said, that's three instances in a row where something was kind of strange. I said, okay, here's the deal. If I ever get to India, I'm going to dog down these naughty astrologers. But you got to understand one thing. An Anglo is never going to get to India. Because you don't know where to go, what to do. You, know, you don't speak Hindi. It's not going to happen. But I said, all right, if I ever get there, I'm going to dog them down. Because there's something going on here. Figuring I would never get to India. So, a couple weeks later, uh, the Shooker, I mean, but he owns these two NASDAQ traded companies. He calls me up and says, can you do a, a, a prenuptial agreement for my daughter? I said, sure, no problem. So I bang that out. I take the daughter and her future husband to dinner to explain how the thing works. And the Shook thought it was pretty cool. Now, this is June 15th in 2014. A couple days later, oh no, on the 15th, I get an invitation to the daughter's wedding. He lives in Pittsburgh, so I'm saying, I'll go to Pittsburgh. But I look at the invitation, it's to New Delhi. I'm going, what the? And they've been to New Delhi. How do you get there? So I call Rakesh, go, you going? He goes, absolutely. He goes, you have to. I said, yeah, is this don't a be insulted. Yeah, I said, is this a perfunctory thing where he knows the invitation you can't accept? He goes, no, I'm telling you. He's going to put you up in a five-star hotel. We're going to have a driver. It'll be unbelievable. You have to go. I said, okay, I'll go under one provision, that we dog down these naughty astrologers and get to the bottom of this. Because at this point, your head is spinning. You're going, there's three coincidences here. This is challenging everything, again, that I've ever believed in or have believed in. Well, I, I need to I need to run this down more. I got I, I got to figure out how they do this BS because it's got to be a crock of bull. So, the wedding's on June uh, July the seventh. Now Fourth of July is my favorite holiday because you know you barbecue, you get a case of beer, everything's good, right? There's no shopping, none of that yeah. stuff. So I tell my wife I'm going to India, and she's like, "Oh, have a nice trip." Yeah, see ya. <laughs> I, I, I'm not going. So I said, "Okay." So I I you know. But I have to get a visa. So I'm standing on 23rd Street in Manhattan with 100 other Indian guys trying to get a visa to get back to India, right? The, the, um, on July 3rd, I get the visa. Because if it doesn't come in that day, I don't go. Because I can't go. And we fly to India. So we get there, 
And I had done a will for a guy in Manhattan. He says, look, I'm going to pay you in rupees because when you get to India, you're going to need some street money, right? So I said, okay, great. So we go to see his brother, and he's got this brick of 500 rupee notes. And he says, take as much as you, need, as you want and bring back what you don't use. So 500 rupees in that brick, what does that equate to over there? It's probably like, you know, 500, you know, you know thick, you know, band of rupees, right? It's not, it, I forget what the exchange rate is, but it's still pretty decent money. So we got our computer bags. We're stuffing the money in the bags. The money's sticking out the sides. Now you're trying to figure out how do you get out to the mountains. Right. So now we go, okay, let's go see our, now we're cash. How many like days a, do you have before the wedding? It, it kind of starts, right? So, but we got it maybe two days before. So we got a driver to pick us up at the airport, and we go get the money, and then we go to our first naughty. Long story short, doesn't have our leaves. I'm like, because we already sent our thumbprints to him and all that. He says, they probably have them in Chennai. But Chennai's in South India. We, How okay. far was that from New Delhi? A couple thousand miles, so we ain't going down there. So... We leave there, and we stay at Rakesh's buddy's house, who's an astrologer, and they're talking shop. I have no idea what they're talking about. But we wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning and get a guide to meet us at the airport, and we fly to Rajasthan about 1,000 miles away. And uh, Now, you're just like albino Irish guy with a Texas hat on. I got, I got shorts and, t and golf shirt on, and everybody else in India has long pants on with long sleeve shirts. They're worried about You stick out like a sore thumb. Oh, absolutely. And I'm laughing at myself, right? <laughs> So I introduced myself to Rajiv, and I said, Rajiv, Mike Gorman from the United States, home of the mad money printers. Because at that point in time, we're doing QE. And he goes, you know, it's too bad for you guys because it's all over in 2023. And I said, you think we can print money till 2023? He goes, no, I don't know about that. He goes, I'm talking about the earthquakes. I'm going, what earthquakes? Because, you know, California mm -mm, slips underneath the waves. And he goes, the damage will be so great to the United States that you'll be off the world stage just trying to tend to your own wounds from these earthquakes. Now, this is 2014, and here it is 2021, right? So two years from now, maybe it happens. I don't know. So, I, so I'm in a, you know, on a safari, so I'm just writing stuff down. I'm not thinking. I'm just pulling in whatever I, data I can gather. And when I get back to the United States, I'll kind of process it. Now, at this point, and I, I may be jumping ahead for the audience, but did you start to think about writing the book? Because you're writing a book, obviously. And not yet. Not yet. You were just, I want to take down all this information. I want to dive down the rabbit hole and try to prove what they're doing wrong. Yeah, it's all, it's all BS, yes. right? So we get, to, we get to Rajasthan. We get a driver there with Rajiv and Rakesh. And we drive about five hours into the, like, I call it the bush, but it's really the farmland, right? And you're going over streams and stuff. And we get to this tiny village. And he goes, we're here. And I go, what do you mean? We get water? And he goes, no. He points to this little office, this little building. goes, that the guy you want to see is in there. So we get out. I hop out of the car. This town stops. Because there's a white guy in town, right? Yeah. They don't see many white guys. Yeah. Guys are coming up and touching you and stuff What's like that. It's this white American guy. Yeah, and I'm laughing. With a Texas hat Yeah, on. and I'm filming the whole thing. You know, Here's my buddy. Say hello, right? That thing. So we go into this place. And there's about 12 people in there from all over India waiting to see this guy. So we queue up. I'm talking to his son. I'm asking him questions. We videotaped the whole thing. So Rajiv, Rakesh, and I, myself, we go into the guy's office. And when I say an office, it's very tiny. Three people come out. We squeeze, you know, three people come in. There's only room for the three of us, you know. 
and he's there with his son. So Rakesh is videotaping the interview, and he says, um, and the problem was, when I was with Rakesh, and I always go, hey, Rakesh, what do my charts look like? And he goes, when were you born? I said, December 3rd. You didn't have your time, though. No, he didn't know. I said, what time were you born? I said, I don't know. He goes, check your birth certificate, because oftentimes there's a timestamp there. Mine doesn't. But my mother's still alive. So I call her up and said, Mom, I'm the firstborn. Do you remember when I was born? She goes, he's Polish. She goes, no. I go, was it the morning? Was it the afternoon? Was it the night? She goes, I don't remember. And I'm going, figures, right? So I figured, the old man knows, because he's still alive. And he wasn't doing anything particular at that point in time. So he's a crusty old iron worker. I go, hey, chief, you remember when I was born? He goes, no. So, so Leave I go, me alone. Yeah. So I go back to Rakesh and I go, I don't know. And he goes, can't help you, dude. If you don't know the time, you're just guessing. So he could never look at my charts. So we get in to see this guy and he goes, show me your palms. And I, I show him my palms. And he gets a slate out and he starts drawing the 12 houses, the um, 12 houses of astronomy. And he's making all these calculations. And then he rolls out this mat. And there's only like maybe 30 dials there. And he was thinking of your highest deity. I want you to pick one of these dials out. So I said, how about that one? And he goes, they have your leaf. And I go, how does that work? What the fuck does that mean? Right, yeah. And he goes, <laughs> he goes, well, the numbers that you picked on that dial agree to the numbers on his chart. So he knows he has your leaf. If you had picked any of the other dials, he didn't have it. I go, okay. So they, they go pull the leaf. And he starts giving me the, and, he, and he's giving me this reading. He's telling me about my, my daughter. He says, my son is, thinks the world revolves around him. He's a leveraged finance guy, thinks he's all that, right? But he says, your daughter's much more intelligent. And she works with, she's a music therapist. She works with autistic children. They're, they're, I, you, know, you always love your kids, and I do. But the kids it, are both very but, successful. Right. But both very intelligent. But he's saying, I'm saying, how the hell did he know about these guys? Is, you know, I'm in India, freaking a million, gazillion miles away. How would he ever know about them? So he gives me this reading, and there's nothing. He says, you're going to write a book that's going to be published in many countries, and as a result of that book, you're going to become famous. And I'm like going, that's not too tough to take, right? But I'm saying, it's all Shangri-La. So at the end of the reading, he goes, do you have, now he's speaking in Tamil. You, you understand why Tamil's not very good. Rajiv is interpreting. He goes, do you have any questions? So I go, nah, I'm good. Rakesh goes, ask him when you were born. So I go, okay. And he goes, they're, they're doing this, you know, all this crazy stuff, and they go, 6.16 a.m. They could have told me 12, 10, yeah, 3, I don't know. know. So they're all writing it down, and I'm writing it down. And they're all, like, you know, excited about it. And, um, but my mother at the time had lung cancer. And so I said, tell me about the life expectancy of my mother and father. And this is what the guy said. He said, one will live for three years, and the other will live for five years after that. Now, I figured if my mother got three years of having the lung cancer, not terrible, right? My father's in great health, so I figured, okay, he'll live the five more years, and then he'll go to his great reward. Three years later, my father dies. Now, my mother was this close to death's door. She not only survives, she rallies, and here we are in the fifth year. I would, If I had to bet a million dollars... I would have bet on the pass line for her because there's no way. Did he say something about your mother-in-law as well? Was... I'm not sure if I remember that. But he had also he had also pointed out that you had a toothache. Oh yeah. Oh no, that was that's later. Hold on. Oh, uh, I'm we'll jumping out. I'm jumping ahead. We'll get there. So, 
you know, I'm thinking, eh, I'll figure out how to do this stuff. Because right now he's telling you all this stuff that's going to happen. You're going, how the hell does he know? So we leave. We go you know, tour around for a while. At the floating uh, palaces in Rajasthan, very unbelievable. But we go back to old Delhi. Not New Delhi. We go to New Delhi, but there's an old section. Very narrow streets, cows walking around, dogs. You figure you go down this alley, you're never coming back. But we go to see the top Vedic astrologer in old Delhi. And the minute we walked into his office, I could tell, here's Rakesh, who's very renowned in the United States, and this guy's up here. It's a pupil-teacher relationship. So he goes to me, he goes, okay, when were you born? I go, 6.16 a.m., December 3rd, right? <laughs> so he pulls up the chart, and he's going, you were married in 1982. I go, yeah. And he goes, three years later, you had some surgery. Yeah. He goes, 2000 and 2001 were your highest earnings years. You got my tax returns? <laughs> and he goes, 2008, you had a business failure. I go, oh, yeah. And then he goes, and he started chuckling. He goes, you'd be having toothache. I go, how the hell did you know that? Yeah, you were struggling with a toothache. Yeah, because I couldn't. Going I, out there, but you were in a rush. You were trying to get your visa. I said the hell with it. I'll, I'll figure it out when I get back, yeah. right? I'll take some Advil. So I said, all right, whatever you're looking at has got to be my chart. And he went on to explain everything that the other guy explained. A thousand miles away, he speaks Tamil, he speaks Hindi. Evan, are you hearing this? They don't know each other. And I go, how the hell could you do that? I said, it's not a million to one. It's like a trillion to one. How could you both tell me the same thing? And he goes, it's pretty easy. And I go, no. He goes, when you're born, he your, called him. your star is set. And it's your life path. And everybody has one, a life path, right? And he says, I'm able to see that life path. Some people call it fate. Some people call it destiny. Some people call it divine providence. And he goes, all I'm doing is looking at your life history. And then I can project that into the future. What I also learned is the more spiritual the guy that you're dealing with, the more likely it is to be correct. All right. So there is a correlation there. So let me fast forward and jump the story forward a little bit because there's so many details. So you now go to this, this wedding, have a great time. You come back to the United States and you're now sitting there going, what the hell? I went, in thinking I, was, I, I went into it thinking this is all BS and I'm going to figure out how they do the three-card Monty. And I come back out and say, what the hell is this? This is something I never anticipated. So, um, you know, I was doing this. this um, we have a men's prayer group on Wednesday mornings at 6 o'clock in the morning. And we, we go over the week's Gospels and stuff like that. Now, as a Roman Catholic, I'm taught that, you know, oh, there's no such thing as reincarnation. Hindus believe big in reincarnation. So Meaning is, that if you're a good person, you kind of elevate through the universe into the next life or you come back as a well, you, donkey you, if you're a bad guy. You're, you're, you're reborn, right? And so if, you're looking through the, if you really look through the Catholic Bible, you will see instances of, of reincarnation. And this is not a religious discussion. It's not no, like yeah, that. No, not right? at all. But I'm saying, um, so Anad, Isla Sukadia's son, gave me a book way back, and he said it was Many Lives, Many Masters by... Brian Weiss, who's a Jewish psychiatrist in Miami. Now, this is a book you have held on to. You just didn't read for a while? No. As soon as he gave it to me, I brought it home, and I put it on my nightstand. And I figured I'll work through it for a couple of weeks. 
Well, I read the forward, and the next thing you know, it's 4.30 in the morning, and I finished the book. So the, ne <laughs> so the next, next day, when I woke up, I said to my wife, I said, this is a really interesting book. You should read it. She never does anything I ask her to do. So I come home from work that night, and she goes, what a load of crap. She says, the problem with you is you think this is real. You need to go to counseling, Counselor. right? And I'm like going. And now your head's going a million different well, I'm ways. I'm saying, look, I'm not saying it's real. I'm saying it's interesting. And she goes, no, you're, you're screwed up. You, you live in an alternative universe. You need to go to counseling. So I said, okay, to keep the peace, why not? I said, who should I go to? And she goes, go see this guy, Billy Ward. He, he helped my brother. Maybe he can help you. So to keep the peace, I go. So I go see Billy. We're yakking. And I said, Billy, you ever read Many Lives, Many Masters? And he goes, oh, yeah. And I said, what'd you think? He goes, he goes, it's right there. I could see it on his library, right? And he goes, I was so enamored with that book, I flew down to Miami to meet the author. I go, you did? He goes, yeah. I said, oh, what God, happened? Now goes, the two of you psychos are sitting here oh, yeah. pondering life together. And I'm sitting there going, what happened? He goes, my wife and I went down, and we, we explained his practice, we meditated, and then he put my wife under hypnosis, and she explained her life as a servant at the Inca Tempas in South America, right? Now, the Brian Weiss book talks about this woman, Catherine, who's the subject, and she had 80, 80 different lives. It's a great book. It's a seminal book. If you read it, your life will change in ways you will not expect. And I've given it to some people. They've called me up and said, you, you, in one instance, you saved my life. And I said, I wasn't trying to do that. I was trying to help you out. So uh, I said, dude, I'm here because my wife thinks I live in an alternative universe. And he goes, if you do, so do I. Yeah. And I'm like going. And I'm supposed to be your counselor. Yeah, and I'm saying, <laughs> we, I can't tell her this because this does not go good. So I started coming back to him and saying, have you read this? Have you read that? And he goes, no. No, I said, wait a minute. I thought you were the varsity. Now I'm finding out I'm the varsity. You're the JV. Read this. Read that. You know, and so we really were. Well, getting... you're the type of mind where, you know, just like you have all these designations and you understand this complex tax law, you're the guy that drills down. And you need, from what I've observed of you, you need to get to the answer. Even if the answer's not there, you just keep drilling, 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 drilling. Well, well, the thing that Billy said to me, he says, you should write a book. I said, why? He goes, he goes you're not a stupid guy. You're a lawyer, CPA, and all this crazy stuff. He goes, so if you come to a conclusion, people are going to say, he's not stupid. It must be true. Mm -hmm. So I said, all right. So, that's when I, so when I got back from the trip to India, I started to write down all this stuff, right? Because you figure... Over time, you're going to forget yeah, some yeah, of the minutiae. Yeah, you got it. For instance, my daughter, they just they had their first, my grandson, first grandson. Congratulations. Yeah, that, oh, oh, he's, Salute. And, he, and he's tremendous. He's Michael J. Gorman IV, right? So he's royalty. So when I first got back, I told my future uh, daughter-in-law, I said that the Swami told me you would have two sons. So they had the first. And they've been doing in vitro, but they've been using the female eggs. Mm -hmm. Not taken, not taken, not taken. And she goes, effing swamis. How did they know? She says, so the, the, the male egg is going to take, and I'm going to have two sons. Because, you know, everybody wants to have one of each, you know, that kind of thing. And I, I had forgotten that they even told me that. Now, if that happens, you got to admit. It's another thing that another they strength, had, right? right? It's like, you know, another check mark in the box. So you, you and I want to move this along. So you started writing this book 
you're you're obviously still working full time. You're coming home late hours of the night, reading all these different books, writing down all these, you know, things that are happening in your life. And I remember something that you told me that you had a neighbor at the time <laughs> that you were you have known for how many years? How many years did you know that guy? I didn't know him that long, but uh, one of my friends, uh, Alberto, uh, his good friend Richie, they had gone to high school together. And he was building this condo where I, I ultimately bought the condo after I moved out of Short Hills. And um, so I'm telling him about my adventures in India, and he's going... You know, that's pretty interesting. He says, my son can see souls. And now you're going. I'm like going. Way too many coincidences. Yeah. How long was this after India? Oh, it was right after I got back, right? So it was coming at me like a fire hose. I'm going, I'm not quite sure what you're telling me here, right? And he's going, well, you know, you and I, we can see each other. And he says, there could be a soul right here. Now, we can't see them, but that doesn't mean it's not there. But he can see them. He went to school in um, Virginia, where the battlefields are. And he was driving down the street one night, because I, I wanted to see him for my book, right? I figured I'd put him in. And, um, but he wouldn't see me, because his father goes, everybody thinks he's nuts. He doesn't want to talk about it. But I kept pestering him, no luck. So finally, I had this manuscript that I had put together, and I, I gave it to him and said, look, give this to your son, and maybe he'll agree to see me. Two weeks later, he's standing in my driveway, and he goes, I want to talk to you. I said, why now? I never met him. And he goes, because you understand what I see. And I go, I do? So we had breakfast and explained. Remember like uh, Patrick Swayze and the Ghost, right, that movie? Yeah. It's not quite like that, but there are people that for some reason when they, they died, they did not want to continue on their soul journey. They didn't want to go to the light. They didn't want to continue on. They got frozen sort of in time and he can see these people and they're there and I'm like oh boy here I go but he told me a lot of different like he his father bought a, a marina up in Lake Apacon and so one spring he says hey will you come up with me and help me open up the marina and he said sure so they're going up there and he goes go up into that we have a little boathouse there go up into the attic and get some anchors so he goes up there and he comes back with a bloody nose and he goes what happened to you and he goes Somebody punched me. He goes, there's nobody up there. What are you talking about? He goes, I don't know. There's people up there. And so he said, I saw these guys, and the guy punched me. And so they went to see this woman, Alona, who lives in Madison. And she, I'm, she's a very in interesting pe person, to say the least. And she came out, and she said, they went up into the attic and said, hold my hand. And the minute he touched her hand, he could see all these souls. And wouldn't you know... This marina had been a dumping ground for corpses from the mob during Prohibition. So they'd oh, bring the people shit. up there and whack them and dump them out. And he could see these souls in there. And I'm like going, whoa. Now, what, uh, again, I've asked you this throughout the conversation. Like, what are you thinking at this time? Like, are you just taking it in and not thinking anything? Or are you just like, I'd, I'd be bugging out. I'd be like... What the fuck is going on? No, I, I'm thinking that I've read about astral shells and, and when, what happened. So if you, if you go into like uh, Michael Newman or Brian Weiss, um, they talk about the journey of the soul. In fact, the, the Gnostic Gospels from Christ 
um, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, which never made it into the Bible, talks about Christ was telling her about the journey of the soul. And, you know, 85% of the people on the planet, from whatever denomination they're at, believe in an afterlife, right? They believe in the soul. Of some sort. Yeah. And it's all you either different. go upward or downward. So Francis, uh, about a year and a half ago, came out of, and he goes, you know, there's really no such thing as hell. And all the Italian guys in the back had a freaking stroke. They go, get him back in here. He says, for 2,000 years, we've been teaching these people that if you don't do what we tell you, you're going to go to hell. Dante, bring the pictures. Not good. You don't want to be you in look there. look like the Pope. Right? You look like the Pope. You could be the Pope. Uh, well, he's, he's, I don't think so. <laughs> he's a liberal Pope, this guy, huh? <laughs> well, they say he's a socialist, right? But he, uh, the, well, he must be friends with Biden. <laughs> I don't know about that, but he was... He went over to see Orban in, in Hungary, and he goes, look, I understand you're a populist and you're against abortion. He said, but as well as we're against abortion, however, your position on immigration is not correct. He said, just as you have the right to life for abortion, immigrants have a right to life, too. So you have to make accommodations for the immigrant. That's a lesson for Hungary. It's a lesson for the United States. So... Mm, let's Sounds leave socialist. that to the side because that's, a, that's getting a little pop, that's getting a little bit political. Let's leave that to the side. Let's get so, back to this. Yeah, so, so you, you now are sitting there with all this information coming at you through a fire hose, and you're going, "I'm going to write this down. I wrote this manuscript. I gave it to this kid. He kind of gives me some, some validation." Where are you at today with all this? So, um, I was, you know, I've been doing wills and trusts for all these people. Not making nearly the money that I used to make, but I feel they're all, you know, if somebody calls me and they have no money, I'm doing the stuff for them anyway. You're because, always super charitable with yeah, your time and I'm saying knowledge. just because they can't afford it doesn't mean they don't need it. So here, take it. And I'm always thinking, you know, maybe it'll maybe pay it for it. So I'm with this woman, her, hus her, her son died and she lives in Queens. So some, one Sunday afternoon I'm sitting with her and she goes, I've been having bad thoughts. I go, how bad? She goes, bad. I said, that's not good. I said, um, she goes, you're right. I went to a psychiatrist. He gave me some medicine, he, some counseling. I think I'm better now. I said, that was the right thing to do. So we're sitting there, and it's like that pregnant moment when there's a little silence, and I go, I know how you were going to do it. She goes, oh, you do, do you? I said, how? I said, see them three cats over there? You were going to take those three cats with your favorite play playlist, you were going to go downstairs into the, like, she has this garage with a Mercedes in there. I said, you're going to put your playlist in the car, leave the windows open, not open the garage door, and close the door to get into the place, and start the car, listen to your music, and fade out. She goes, how the hell did you know that? I said, it was a guess. Because you know, no, she showed me her car when I came in, the door was open, I said, Eh, maybe that's how I would do it, right? I'm not going to stick my head in the oven, right? <laughs> that doesn't work. So I'm sitting there going, she's going, I said, look, here, I understand what you're going through because to lose, it, it's a permanent loss. And I said, but I'm going to give you this book and I want you to read it because I think it'll give you some peace. And it was Brian Weiss's book, Many Lives, Many Masters. So she called me about two weeks later and says, do you understand that you changed my life? And I said, <coughs> no. That's not what I was trying to do. I was trying to give you some comfort. And she goes, I realize now that this period of time is 
very temporary. It's short in the context of an eternity. And I will see my son again. And I said, indeed you will, right? So she said, you know, in many ways you saved my life. And I said, well, I wasn't trying to do that, but I, I'm happy that I could be of, of, of service or help. And I gave that this same talk at her eulogy. She died um, about, about six weeks ago. What was her name? Miriam. Very Rest nice. in peace, Miriam. Oh, Miriam, and she's, you know, so about a couple of weeks later, she calls me up and she goes, I just bought you a ticket. And I said, to the Mets? And she goes, no. She goes, better team, Yankees. <laughs> Brian Weiss is speaking at a Jewish temple in Manhattan with a, a very well-renowned rabbi, and I wanted to know if you wanted to go. And I said, I'm there, right, because he wrote the book. This so we, lady went down the rabbit hole with you. Oh, she absolutely did. And her boyfriend. She brings him with him. So we go to this thing, and he's talking about all the stuff, which I read all the stuff. And at the end, there was a book signing. So I buy another book. I got tons of them. And I'm waiting in line. And, I, and in, the, in this book, he, when he was um, Catherine, his subject, he has had many subjects, but this was one particular one. He had her in this hypnotic trance, and, and all of a sudden her voice changed. And, she go, and he goes, I'm not talking to Catherine. Who are you? And he goes, oh, I'm one of the guides. And he goes, what's that? What guide? Yeah, and he goes, they call us mentors, guides, guardian angels. And he says, everybody has them, and oftentimes more than one. And um, that's what I am. And he goes, so he goes, all right, tell me what happens when you die. And he says, well, your soul rises, and it go first thing it does is it goes to an area of rejuvenation because it kind of gets beat up on the planet. And then after that, it goes to an area of enlightenment. You go back to your soul groups and you study and, you know, you try to move forward. And he says, okay, I get that. He says, but why do you have to come back? If you're going to an area of enlightenment, why do you have to come back and reincarnate over and over again? Karma. To live wheel, a better life. The wheel of karma. He goes, forward. He goes, you can't just walk, you, you just can't talk the talk. You have to walk the walk. It's experiential learning. You have to experience what the hell they're talking about. So people come back into many different lives. So you, me, everybody that's listening to this has had prior lives. We don't So know. do you believe this? I absolutely. You believe it now. Oh yeah. So does this go against your Catholic religion or beliefs? No, you you might recall if you're if you're a Catholic, you might recall there's a gospel where the um, Christ asks the apostles, who do they say I am? Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're this. And I'm so like, so why did why did the Bible tell a different story in your opinion? Council of Nicaea, 300 A.D. They took all the writings that were out there. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John control? made it in, and other ones that they couldn't figure out. You said control, absolutely. So whether it's kind of like our government's doing today. All all of the re religion, all these structured religions are control mechanisms, but so Krishna. Buddha, Christ, these were enlightened Quran. individuals. You know, well, that was that was um, Muhammad, and Muhammad was getting his information channeled from the angel Gabriel. Uh, and you might remember Gabriel who talked to Virgin Mary and all this. Now, does your wife believe this? No, absolutely not. She thinks she, you're batshit crazy. She throws my She throws the books I read out if she catches them. <laughs> she does. So, not to dive crazy into the religion side of it. When does Mike Gorman publish this book, 
because I want to be the first person that reads the final copy. There's one thing I've been waiting for. Remember when I told you that Anil would become the richest guy in the world? Well, thus far, that didn't work. But, yeah. what, but right now, you know, I talk to him. Every, I have my Sunday call. Every Sunday I call him, what's going on, right? So he's, he's drilling wells. And we got, so in March of 2020, you may recall that through Cantango, oil went to zero. So when oil's at zero, who wants to invest in oil exploration? Nobody. So Shell, Exxon, you name the, the multi, uh, Total, they all pulled back. Nobody's spending any money on exploration. So I called O'Neill and said, well, we spent our 50 million. We drilled a couple wells. We haven't flowed anything. We're out of money. We're broke. We're done. Who's going who's gonna to lend us? Who's going to invest in us? Nobody. So he goes, you know, you would think that. But I just got a loan from the United States government for $300 million in the week that we hit zero. Now, you what, go tell me, is that not PPP? unusual? <laughs> it wasn't PPP. It was from, uh, oh, what's that curmudgeon guy's name? Um, now, why would the United States government loan him over in Oman $300 million? How does that benefit us? It's from OPIC, the Organization of uh, Private Investment Council. And rather than just give countries more money, we'll just blow it. What the OPIC does is they lend money to companies, U.S. companies, that are doing business in those countries to force their you know, good business results so that they'll buy goods and services from the United States, but will also help those countries develop. Right? So, there, so OPEC is hoping by doing good deeds and passing it forward, you're going to then buy goods and services from the U.S. It's a form of foreign aid. So he got right. $300 million. So, so you're, you're four, rocking at, and rolling. At 4%, right? At 4%. But it's dedicated just to this one well. So at the time when everything is collapsing to its total bottom, if we had hit oil before then, we would have probably borrowed a couple of billion dollars to build the infrastructure. Yeah, because you can lever it then. And then when oil crashes down to zero, guess what happens to us? We go bankrupt. Mm -hmm. They take the block, we're out. So since then, a year later, we've drilled these wells, and now he thinks he has maybe... 100 to 300 trillion cubic feet of gas, as well as oil offshore. And so I'm thinking in the next couple of months, that'll, that'll manifest itself. And then the predictions that these swamis had made for me will have come true. And now I can put that into the book because <coughs> the whole predicate was that this, you know, the predictions were that these guys would be the richest guys in the world. If it doesn't happen, well, it's just some other jackass guessing at stuff. But if it does happen, people are going to say, there's no way. Well, you documented everything. I know right. that for years. They're going to say, there's no way that that happened. I'm saying, oh, I got tapes. I got people. I got the whole thing. It absolutely happened. And people are going to say, how could that possibly have happened? So all of a sudden, um, Vedic astrology, Nadi astrology. Will be put on the map. Destiny. All these things will have a... a, a an, an increased significance to some to some people. What's the book going to be called? When I first wrote it, I, I gave it the title "The Richest Man in the World," and it was a story about how you know Anil went from rags to riches, and you know I thought it was a business book and people would be excited. Rags about to it. riches—that's what Fireside Chats about, right? But then I changed the title. I said, instead of "The Richest Man in the World," it became "The Richest Person in the World." 
The reason for that was it's not about Anil. It starts with him and all the stuff that happened. But in the end, what you realize is, is that each of us as the reader of that book or not, we're in a soul journey. And the reason why we're here on this planet is to learn certain lessons in life and move forward to that enlightenment. Now, I don't, I'm not saying this is religion, right? It's not. It's more, I think we call it spiritual. So where am I going after this? Where are we all Place going? Place on earth. Where am I going? We are all ultimately one in being with the creative source. I don't call that person God. I call him the creative source, the source of one. We were all part of the creative source in the beginning through eternity, and we separate into soul groups and into individuals, and we will reconnect as one with the creative source. So that's why you said richest person. Right, because it encompasses women, men, right? Why do women always get the short end of the stick? <coughs> it's, it's maybe built, baked in misogyny. Do you think God has an that's appendage? That's opinion. I don't think so. Does he have a beard? No. Does the creative source... The creative source doesn't have any of that. And if you look through the Gospels or the Quran and all these things, when they look at the other side of the veil, it's different. It's not man and male and female. virgins? Uh, well, that's, that's my definition of hell. I would say. <laughs> <laughs> so I just want to know when you, you know, finally hit these options, because at the end of the day, what people don't realize, and we didn't talk about it much, Instead of taking your fees, which would have been a pretty large number in fees, you said to this guy, Neil, pay me in options. I want to be in on this whole deal. I sent him a proposal, and, and um, you know, he's very analytical. He's a smart guy. And so I said, like, you know, he goes, how do you want to get paid? I said, I, I know what you're up to. I said, how about options? And in the contract I had sent him, he said, you mean page three, paragraph four? I said, I guess you must have read it, right? And he, and he said... He said, well, how does this work? I said, well, if you win, I win. If you lose, I lose. And he goes, and I thought he was going to throw me out. <coughs> and he goes, I like it. Let's do it. So I said, okay. So I get 100,000 options. Now, I spent the weekend out of his house with his, with his family. And on Sunday, we're sitting there doing all these kind of crazy contracts. And as I'm leaving to go to the airport, he goes, Mike, do you have that, that options agreement that we talked about? I said, yeah, I didn't, I didn't have a chance to look at it yet. And he goes, give me that. So I give it back to him, and he, and he goes, you got a pen? I said, yeah. So he's crossing stuff out, and I go, oh, geez, I must have pissed him off. You know, I'm getting cut here. And he goes, I bumped you from 100 to 300. <laughs> he liked you. I'm like, yeah, right? And since then, he's given me much more. So I have, like, maybe about a million dollars in options and a we bought like 200,000. So just shares. for just for fun numbers and we do this a little bit at the end of this. <clears throat> those options hit versus what he thinks is there in those three wells. What does that equate to for you? Well, he's telling me uh, these you know if we have 100 TCF, which I think we have much more. But let's just use that as a number. That's 200 billion. Now, that doesn't mean it's worth 200 billion today because the the gas yeah. and oil comes out That's of a future. Over, That's over a future time. value. So you get a present value. Of that. So I'm saying cut it in half just for stuff and then present value it. So maybe the 200 is worth 50. Well, if I have uh, a million shares and I multiply that by 50, that's $50 million. In my book, that's good. Not a bad payday. Right? But I think there's much, much more than that. 
And so wouldn't it be interesting if the people that are listening to this nonsense are going to say, holy shit, uh, uh, cut that. You could say that. All right. It came true. They're going to say, that's impossible. And then I can lay back and say, this is step by step how it happened. And what that's going to lead to is the conclusion that there's much more to this life than any of us realize. And that's, and that's really been, well, you've been on a journey. You've been on a journey since this all came to you, the challenge. And it's not been easy because my wife, she, I, I love her dearly, but she thinks you're an idiot. You don't, this is all crap. You come off as crazy. You will come off as crazy in this. And oh, I, I know. Yeah, you've, you have felt crazy yourself many times, you have said. Well, it's just hard to go against everything you've ever known. Well, when, I, when I, I've talked to Jesuits, Catholic priests, all this stuff, they ask them all these questions, and they, they, they have not read any of the stuff that I've read. And I'm saying, where, have you read the Quran? No. no. They just go down one path. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Where's your intellectual curiosity? Those are your competitors. Don't you want to know what your competitors are talking about? So for instance, I, so we have this prayer group on Wednesdays, and I said, how do you know Christ is the Messiah? And they all go, I don't know. I said, it's in the Quran. I said, what are you talking about? He's mentioned 136 times that he clearly... No one challenges anything they've ever been brought up on. No, because when you when Mohammed went down to the Kaaba, where everybody's circling around, you know, the, the Zam Zam well and all that stuff, he went down and there was, there's 12 totems, 12 different gods. So when he comes down off the mountain after talking to Gabriel, he goes, you know you guys are worshiping the wrong gods. And they're going, what are you talking about? He goes, well, there's only one, not 12. And he goes, so you're telling me that my ancestors and I have been worshiping the wrong God? He's going, yeah, that's what I'm telling you. <laughs> Muhammad gets thrown out of Mecca. So he goes up to, um, no, not Mecca, but I forget the name it's of the town. Cra it's a crazy, all of it's a lot. It is, but it all is connected. And so right now, we are going through a shift. In the United States, there's the left and there's the right. And you can tell that there's a definite split. It's not like a little bit here, a little bit, no. But if you go to any country in the world, there's a split. And it's not, you know, Republicans and Democrats. It could be. Yeah, whatever you know, it is. Yeah. You know, in Germany, in China. Different parties. All splits. And that's part of this mystical or spiritual shift. We're, we're moving. When we, in 2012... We went from, remember the end of the Mayan calendar? Remember that the world was going to end? No, the world didn't end. We left the Piscean era, the era of the teacher, the era of the Christ, if you will, and we moved into the age of Aquarius. Now, you're too young, but I'm old enough. The age of Aquarius, remember that? This is the age of Aquarius. It was sung by a group, and the name of the group was the Fifth Dimension. We are transitioning from the third degree, third dimension, which is the lowest energy level possible, the physicality. So we're going to go to more positive places. Right, to the fifth dimension. I, so when I went to meet this one lady loner, I said, what happened to the fourth dimension? She goes, you've been there. When you die, your soul goes to the so fourth what's the dimension. Fifth dimension. The better, fifth dimension is the eighth. So you remember... When, better place on Earth? It, it, it's, it's on Earth, so, but the whole planet is cleansing itself. So you're going to see... So the, Trump's going to come riding on a Trojan horse. Uh, no, I didn't say that. I said what you're going to see is earthquakes. You're going to see sea level rise. and So, so we've got to move to Aspen with 
or ten. No, you need to go to well, Colorado, <laughs> Mile High, right? <laughs> so listen, I don't want to keep going down these paths. I know you you have dove so deep down into this. But every every year that goes by, we get closer to that and away from the normal. Well, what we're living to right now, and this is what October think anything, of twenty one. It's not normal. It's I, not. I think everybody could say that we're not living in normal times, and I, I I'm a big believer in good will prevail and. The truth will set us free. And uh, now, don't give that. Here's my new saying: Darkness is the absence of light. Well, the light. We're about to come to the light because we've been in the darkness. Ignorance is the absence of knowledge. Darkness is what we have today, and the world right. and so, corruption. So, and leadership. when when light hits the room, darkness dissipates. When not, once you learn something, you can't unlearn it. You, you know it. Yeah. So it's permanent. It, it just gets imprinted into your being. So the more knowledge, true knowledge that we get, the more enlightened I it think that we become. shifts the universe. And, and so we as individual, this, this thing, this body is temporary, clearly, but the soul is, is eternal. So the lessons that we learn here are taken with us when we leave. And we share them. To our next Point of departure. Now, if you think I'm going to tell you what's going on on the other side, no can do. Well, listen, I, I, I don't have I don't know. I, yeah, I don't have that answer either. But this has been a good one. <laughs> this is an interesting one. And anybody that wants Mr. Gorman's contact info, I'll just put you on a group text because he could talk about this for days. Well, you don't have to worry about that because in the next couple of months, if Anil explodes in value, everybody. See, here's the thing. If I'm broke and I got you know holes in my shoes and, and you know no money, nobody wants to listen to me because I'm just another mo, you know, is, with his plight in life. But if I get a boatload of money, oh, everybody wants to and listen. You're gonna he's book. shrewd. He's smart. No, he's the same idiot where, that was here over here. Gonna, where are you gonna publish the book? I I don't want it to put it on on it's online self publishing. I want to get it to so it's distributed to the maximum amount of people. But in that's the world. online. If that's where it goes, I don't care if I make money on it. That's not the. In, it's to you want to get the story out, get the story out, get the information out, and hopefully that information can help these people move forward in their own lives. That's good. Maybe that generates enough positive karma where I can get off the wheel of karma and move to the fifth dimension. I'll see you. I'll see you in the fifth dimension. <laughs> I'll see you in the fifth dimension. Well, I'm going you. to the fourth. <laughs> Thanks for coming. You'll Mike. be back. <laughs> Tune in.